so today uh, we're going to continue uh, our focus on DNA, which I'm personally enthusiastic about, at least in terms of being such a, a fascinating molecule. And I told you um, the, the story last time of how we actually came to understand that DNA was, was the genetic material. And I still see comments that, oh God, you know, all this stuff is not relevant to the exam. We're trying to construct the exams in ways that test whether you got the concepts and not just whether you memorized every term that you ran into in, in the textbooks. I'm hoping that, that uh, you will see some greater purpose in why I'm trying to talk about some of this. And also, I'm sure some of you will forget the details of transformation of uh, DNA replication we're going to go into as we drive, sort of burrow into it over the next lecture or so. But I'm, what I am hoping you may remember 10 years from now, even those who don't go in biology, is how experiments are done, how real people do them. And that was partly what I was trying to tell you, and you guys were pretty good at figuring out the basic principle that someone had to somehow show that a DNA molecule in one organism could change some organism to have a new characteristic. And as I sort of told you with the work from Frederick Griffith, and then his initial stuff wasn't devoted at that at all. It was trying to solve a very pressing problem, which was dealing with uh, pneumonia in a pre-antibiotic era. And then the finding that he got, that this odd result that something in a heat-killed extract could be transferred to a live bacterium uh, sort of set things up for Avery and his colleagues after a number of years of work to, to make uh, a very powerful uh, argument that DNA was the genetic material. But as I said at the end of, of last lecture, that paper was published in the 1940s, and people immediate, didn't immediately say, oh, wow, DNA's the, uh, the genetic material. Um, often, and we'll see it again with genetics, is sometimes sort of the, the body of, of science, the average the way person, average person thinks about science needs to reach a certain state before an idea can take hold, even if there's evidence supporting it. Part of the problem was that chemists had um, isolated DNA, and the way they used to isolate DNA was really rough on it. Crack the cells open, and what happened, it would all get broken down into little pieces of, of DNA. And people had worked out the basic chemical structure, that it was the deoxyribose and how, how the things were joined together, but nobody had ever seen anything more than just these little, these little pieces of DNA. And there was a, a widely held conception that it was uh, just a monoton monotonous um, tetranucleotide of G, A, T, and C. It wasn't clear why the cells made it, but it didn't look like anything that could encode information. Whereas they said something like proteins, those seem to be very different. And so the world wasn't quite ready for it. Um, another thing, and this came from one of the comments here, was uh, someone said they didn't know bacteria could take up DNA in the environment. In fact, most bacteria can't. Uh, it happens that streptococci and some other bacteria at certain phases in their lifetime develop this capacity to take up DNA from, from the outside. Given what I've told you about a membrane and how hard it is to get things across it, you can imagine it's not trivial to get a DNA molecule, which is huge, from one side to the other. So it doesn't normally happen. And what happens if you go into a lab and you're cloning something or other and you've just, we'll talk about how to 
take a piece of D, couple of pieces of DNA and join them together in a test tube and then put them back into a bacterium. If we put it into uh, E. coli uh, that doesn't normally take up DNA, you'll find it's sort of basically black magic. You cook them up with some divalent cations at very high concentrations. You do temperature shifts and various things and or you give them a big jolt of electricity and the next thing you know, you get some DNA inside. And it's not a very efficient process, but all you need is one molecule to get in one bacterium and then, then you're in business. So that was another reason that um, this wasn't accepted right away because this was not a phenomenon that could easily be repeated with other, with other bacteria. So it looked like perhaps it was something perhaps special to, to Streptococcus. And what, what did really change people's understanding of, of the or at least bring people to the understanding that um, DNA could possibly be the genetic material uh, came about from the discovery of the actual structure of how the structure of DNA uh, as, a, as a long molecule with complementary strands and the double helix, the stuff, the little pictures I showed you with the base pairs, which you know about, and how this, the two strands which now I'm going to start emphasizing run in opposite directions. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But the five prime to three prime direction is, is this way in one and five to three in the other. And just remember back here that there's the five prime carbon, that's the three prime carbon. So this is the five to three prime direction of the, of the strand. And then it twists up in three dimensional space to form this uh, double helix double helix, and you've seen that movie uh, several times. So it was once that structure was, was discovered, then um, people began to see how this could possibly encode information. It was clearly not a GA, just a tetranucleotide of, of GATCs. But we didn't move immediately to that understanding. And today, again, sort of trying to show you uh, how, how biology <laughs> how biological experiments done and how they're done by, by real people. I, I want to just go on and tell you what happened, the key to things that happened next. So someone who was very um, struck by the results of Avery when they came out was Erwin uh, Shargaff, who was at Columbia. Uh, and in fact, my colleague Boris Megasanik, whose office is next to mine, was a postdoc in, in Shargaff's lab. So I've got <laughs> a neighbor of mine who worked with with Shargaff, and Shargaff was very struck by this result from Avery and his colleagues that you could take DNA and put it in another organism. And I hear a couple of quotes from his, his writing. One that I liked, I've sort of had a sense of this in my own research career, this kind of thing. He said, I saw before me in dark contours the beginning of a grammar of biology. He didn't really know quite how it worked, but he sort of sensed that somehow here it where you could get down to the language that was biology was written. So he started some experiments. And was, he, I started with the conviction that if different DNA species uh, exhibited different biological activities, there should exist chemically demonstrable differences between um, deoxyribonucleic acids. So he was able to start just doing some simple chemical experiments to try and see uh, look at DNAs from a whole variety of sources and see what he could learn. And this was not at the structural level that yet. This was just at the chemical level. But one thing he learned was that the, the base content of DNA, that's the AGCT part of it, varied 
widely between organisms. So this was what Shargaff found in his lab, key, key findings. And that was important, because if DNA was just a molecule, GATC, just a tetranucleotide that every organism made, then you expect to find the same base composition in all organisms. He didn't. So that, that finding essentially buried the monotonous tetranucleotide hypothesis. Another thing um, he found was that DNA was the same in different tissues from the same organism but the proteins varied and that's what you'd ex that's a characteristic you'd expect of something that was the the genetic information from the cell, that all cells have to have sort of the, the major blueprint. And if you had, even though proteins looked like an attractive possibility for that because they had so much variation, this kind of finding wasn't consistent with it and it was a, supported the idea that DNA was the, the genetic material. Well, the other thing he could do is he could measure the A, T, G, and C content of all these different a, DNAs. And he noticed some similarities then and he, he extracted out of that a couple of, of um, generalizations. One was that if you looked at the ratio of the purines, those are the ones with the two rings, adenosine and guanosine over the pyrimidines. Those are the ones with the single ring, which were C and, C and T. They're about one. Another thing he noticed was that the ratio of A to T was about one the ratio of G and C to C was about one. Now that was an important clue, but it didn't lead to any immediate breakthrough, even though maybe now that you know the structure, you can see, gee, <laughs> if I'd been there, maybe I would have been smart enough to jump on that, on that number. So instead, uh, the, the work uh, that led to the structure of DNA now introduces uh, a couple of other characters who you've uh, heard of a lot, Jim Watson and Francis Crick. At the time that, that uh, Avery made his discovery, uh, reporting DNA was transformation, Jim Watson was, he said, he described himself later as, as a precocious college boy in Chicago who was consumed by ornithology. So he was into bird watching. That's what he was excited about at the time Avery did his experiment. And Francis Crick at that point was a physicist and he was in the British Navy designing mines, naval mines. <laughs> so that's where those two players were at the time of, um, of uh, Avery's results. So then both uh, Francis Crick and um, Jim Watson ended up in Cambridge, England about 1950. I think Crick got there around 1949 and and Jim Watson got there in 1951. Uh, Francis Crick was a grad student, 35 years old at the time. I think we have, uh, let me, I'll, I'll show you the pictures in a minute. Um, 35 years old at the time, still working on his PhD. 
Watson was a pretty elderly grad student, if you want to think of it that way. And Jim Watson was a young hotshot. He'd done his PhD working with Salvador Luria, who was at Indiana University at the time. Salvador Luria was one of the Nobel laureates at MIT. He founded the Cancer Center, which is still here, right across from the, the main biology building. And Jim was very, very bright and brash young guy, and he'd done his PhD with Salva, and then he went to, to Cambridge as well. And the reason um, they both went to Cambridge was they were attracted by the power of X-ray crystallography. Now, I said a little word about that earlier, that if you take X-rays and you bounce them off a crystal and then measure the diffraction pattern, you can work backwards by Fourier transforms and whatnot to figure out what the underlying crystal structure is. For the purposes of this course, the mechanics of how that's done is, is, we don't have to worry about that right now. You just need to know that you can work backwards from the diffraction pattern to figure out what the underlying structure was. And I told you when I introduced you to proteins that the first clues that there were these regions of secondary structure, alpha helices and beta sheets, came because people saw characteristic reflections in, those, um, in these diffraction patterns of certain proteins. And I also told you the story of uh, how uh, uh, Linus Pauling had gone to Oxford, had gotten sick, and tired of reading detective novels, started to try and explain the refractions in certain class of proteins and came up with a model for the alpha helix. And so that was a uh, sort of thing that inspired um, uh, Watson and Crick. They were both interested in when one could get the structure of DNA. Now Cambridge also had a, uh, a very good X-ray crystallography group. And it just in passing, it's interesting as to why they didn't come up with the structure of the alpha helix. There were two, two things. One was just lack of basic knowledge. I told you that the peptide bond, if you remember, I emphasized that you can't rotate it because the electrons are distributed. Pauling was an outstanding chemist. He knew that fact. And the folks at, at Cambridge who were doing that didn't learn this until, until later. So they were, their models were far le less constrained because they could have rotation around that bond. And the other one was just an experimental thing that the photograph, the size of the photographic plates they used in the Cambridge lab were, were too small in the sense that they missed a key reflection that, that, that Pauling knew about and they, they didn't know about. So this combination led to uh, them being scooped by the other group. But the, nevertheless, the, the, uh, the group at Cambridge was absolutely outstanding and, um, and had you know, one of the top places in the world to do. And I showed you um, a couple of pictures. This is when I was showing you the transition state, sort of what you, what you get out of a, um, working backwards from these diffraction patterns is they can make, they can measure regions of electron density. And then you fit atoms or fit molecules to the patterns uh, that you see. And if it's all working, you can explain why there are bumps here. There's an oxygen here and, and so on. There's another one. This is a, an ATP that's bound actually in, the in a pocket in a protein. But you can sort of see how, the, how beautifully the patterns of electron density deduced from the X-ray crystallography will match the chemical structures that we, we put on the board. So that was the idea. They were going to look at, work out the structures, the structure of DNA. Now, the, the thing about Watson and Crick, uh, who at this point looked 
like this. <laughs> um, they didn't look inordinately distinguished. Um, in fact, Jim probably looked like, you've probably seen people who look approximately like that around MIT. He would have fit in right here, no one would have noticed. Um, uh, they were not actually x-ray crystallographers. They were just trying to model other people's data. And the, uh, the best DNA data, uh, DNA crystallography data, was uh, a woman, Ros young woman, Rosalind Franklin, uh, who was working uh, in London in a very uh, somewhat uneasy alliance with Maurice Wilkins and trying to read the history. It's probably, it's a bit complicated because at least some of what I've read, I think that when Rosalind Franklin arrived at the lab, she was told this DNA structure problem was hers and Maurice Wilkins in whose lab she was working was told he was sort of working for her. So there was a bunch of confusion in this. But in any case, uh, Rosalind Franklin uh, was collecting crystallographic data and Watson and Crick located miles, some distance away in, in Cambridge were trying to come up with models that could explain the structure of, of DNA. And they learned about uh, Rosalind's data and it was their data her data that they used to work out the basis, their, her crystallographic data that they used when they put together their structure. So if it hadn't been for her, uh, they wouldn't uh, have been able to make, make their discovery. So part of the reason I'm, I'm dwelling on this is I think this is their discovery of the structure of DNA was arguably one of the great intellectual advances of our time. It just opened doors. The whole field of molecular biology became possible once people suddenly saw that DNA was complementary strands. You could almost immediately see how you could copy genetic information. It laid the groundwork for what later turned out to be you know, recombinant DNA and everything else. So, so much of this pivots around this one, uh, this one discovery. And I think I wouldn't be doing justice to this finding, which you all have heard about for years and years, if I let you walk away from here thinking this was two, ge two young geniuses who sat down in a room uh, with some crystallographic data and emerged uh, with a structure that sort of changed the course of the study of biology and, as you can see, changes our society and, and everything else. Um, there are a couple of accounts of this. There are numerous accounts. Um, one that I, I, I found pretty interesting is called The Eighth Day of Creation, if you ever want to read an interesting book on science. Um, this was uh, Horace Judson's effort to try and um, put together history of this happened. And so with all histories, ultimately, you know, there's some judgment calls by the historian. But this one's pretty, certainly he tried to be pretty fair-handed and even-handed, and he tried to get at the heart of what was going on. Uh, Watson wrote a book called The Double Helix, Jim Watson's very colorful character, particularly quite brash, particularly when he was younger, and that's reflected in this book. It's an interesting read, uh, probably a more balanced point of view, for sure, in Eighth Day of Creation, and there are now a lot of other books. But what I did, just to try and do this in about a, a minute or two, was I took uh, a couple of the, the uh, key things that happened during their adventure of trying to work out the structure of DNA and just kind of ran some of their missteps together because even though this was a marvelous discovery, it just didn't happen. 
Um, so they started out, they were inspired by uh, Linus Pauling's discovery of the alpha helix. And I don't know if you can remember the story, but what, he, what uh, Pauling decided to do when he was lying in bed and with a strip of paper trying to work out the, the structure that was giving these reflections in the crystal structure, he said, I'm going to start by ignoring the side chains. So that was a brilliant move in the case of the alpha helix because he was then able to figure out that that hydrogen bond between the, the carbonyl and the amino group, you could see how if you got the helix going, it would repeat at exactly the the way that would give the reflections that were observed in the crystallography. So that was how Watson and Crick sort of did. Linus Pauling had shown the way, so they decided they would ignore the side chains of, of DNA. So they started out by saying, we won't consider the ATs, the Gs, and the Cs. Well, given what you know about the structure of DNA, that was not a helpful move in, in, the, uh, in trying to work out the structure of DNA. Um, Another thing, for example, that happened was that uh, Jim Watson is, has no lack of self-confidence, and so it, it turned out when he went to hear scientific talks, he didn't take notes. And so he went to hear a talk on X-ray crystallography um, given by Rosalind <coughs> Franklin, but he didn't quite remember the numbers right. Got the facts a little jumbled, and he and Francis spent a while trying to design models to data that wasn't the right data. It was just not quite remembered right, so there was kind of an inefficiency there. And then Jim had a bias almost to the end that the, uh, the phosphate backbones, they knew it was, uh, were some, would somehow be on the inside and the bases would be on the outside of the structure. So if that's your sort of starting place, then it's sort of hard. So Watson, uh, excuse me, Francis Crick, was beginning to suspect that maybe the bases were important. So he hired a young mathematician, and he said, um, can you see whether there, you could work out whether there would be any chemical attraction between any pairs of bases? And the young mathematician came back and said that he thought G might pair with C, or go, to go with C, and A with T. And given what happened here, you might have thought that a light bulb would have gone off, but it didn't. And in fact, Chargaff visited them, and nobody, the light bulb went off for nobody. And in fact, Chargaff wasn't a terribly big fan of what Watson and Crick were, were trying to do. So the pieces are piling up, but still not, still not there. Um, then a big experimental advance came from Rosalind Franklin, and that was she discovered that the uh, DNA that they had been diffracting was actually a mixture of two forms. So there were actually two structures in the, in the mix that were contributing to the diffractions. She was able to separate out the two kinds of DNA, DNA A and DNA B, called it. And so now you, this gave a much clearer, uh, clearer diffraction pattern. And that's the diffraction pattern that that she saw. And uh, Watson and Crick um, managed to get a look at this data. And it's a little complicated how that, uh, how that happened. But uh, Crick realized almost right away that there were two strands running in opposite directions. 
So there was the five to three. He could see it now knew it was five to three in one direction and five to three in the other direction like that. So you might have thought they were home free, but no. Jim Watson immediately built a model that paired like with like. A with A, T with T, G with G. They wrote it up, and they were ready to submit the paper, and they, they gave a presentation to their, their colleagues at, um, at the lab in Cambridge, and they were shot down. And one of the key uh, things was they learned the, the chemical fact that the textbooks were, most of the textbooks were wrong at, in that, at that time in the way that they depicted the structure of guanine. So, if you look in your textbook, uh, excuse me, here. So, if, if you were to look in, in a textbook today, you'd see guanine like this. But this is. There's another way you could draw this. So this, you may remember when we were talking about phosphoenopyruvate, that this is an enol form, and this is a keto form. And this is the way most of the textbooks were showing guanine at the time. So they were looking at the structure of, of guanine in, in, uh, in uh, textbooks. And if you were trying to work out schemes for putting bases together, you can see what's going on up here would be very different if we have a, a hydrogen here versus if we have an oxygen. If you're trying to, say, make hydrogen bonds at that, form, at that particular position, I think all of you understand hydrogen bonds well enough to see how that would throw you off. So once that um, insight came, uh, once, the, once they learned that, then the rest of the structure came pretty fast. And there's a movie about this. One of the nice things in it was sort of trying to show, recreate the experience where I think it was Watson was shuffling these base pairs around. He suddenly realized that you could set up base pairs with A and T and with G and C. And when you looked at them, you could see they were geometrically exactly the same shape. You could just take this, the shape of the G and C pair and lay it right down on the A and T pair. And that, then you could see how you could build either a GC or an AT pair into the repeating structure of this DNA, and it would, it would be compatible. <clears throat> so they, they built a model. And I thought, um, we can just hit the lights for a, for a second here, maybe. Um, just let you see what that first model looked like. <laughs> Looks like something you could hack together in a, a chemistry lab. They had the bases cut out of metal. And you can see just you know here, this retort sort of stands you use in chemistry and various clamps that you'd use for clamping a flask or something if you're doing a chemical lab. That's the stuff that they were using to put the, the, the model together. And they published then uh, a paper in Nature um, that, that told about this result. It was, that's the entire paper reporting the structure of DNA. And maybe you can see there's a little hand-drawn double, double helix right there that captures 
the elements. That is the paper, and that was in the, uh, the journal Nature. And it had in it, right near the end, one of the coyest sentences in the, in the uh, scientific literature. They didn't want to go into all the details that if you had an A paired with T and G paired with a C and you pulled them apart, then you could, you could replicate the molecule by redoing it. So all they said was, it has not escaped our notice that the specific pairings we have postulate, postulated immediately suggest the copying mechanism for DNA. So um, this is a picture of Jim Watson wearing short pants uh, at uh, Cold Spring Harbor in 1953, reporting this, this structure of, of DNA. Uh, Cold Spring Harbor is on Long Island. It's been one of the meccas for uh, molecular biology uh, since the, the 1940s. They have a famous symposium once a year. The topic changes every year and rarely repeats. And uh, it was at one of those symposia, that this symposia, this was the year that uh, they discovered the, 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 the structure of DNA, and there was Watson. So two years ago, they had another meeting, a special meeting just at exactly this point of <laughs> time of year. It was in February, within a couple of days of right now. So I gave this lecture, and I showed this the students in the class that year, I said, here's a picture of Jim Watson displaying the structure. They're having a meeting 50 years later in 2003, and I'm going down there, I'm asked to give a talk, and I'll come back and I'll tell you what it was like. So I gave my lecture, I dashed out to the airport, I hopped on the plane, I went down, I registered, they gave me the, you know, the stuff to get into my room, a little envelope with a key card and things, and I went up to my room and I took out the key card and what did I find myself looking at? <laughs> the same picture I had shown to the, the class just a few minutes, uh, a couple of hours earlier. Um, here's another picture of, of Jim at his, the time, the way he looked at the time that he made this amazing discovery. That's Salvador Luria, who I mentioned. I'll tell you about him in a, in a subsequent lecture. I was at another meeting a few years earlier where some of the old timers were razzing each other and someone showed this picture and then they got up and they, they gave it a title and that was picture of a man picking his own pocket. So they, they would tease each other a lot and I'm hoping maybe you'll get a chance to hear a little bit more about that uh, soon. Um, this, was a, I, this is what Jim Watson looks like now. I got a, asked to get a picture taken just so you could see. he's. He's, uh, he's still around and he's very active and uh, still, con still very controversial. I guess this doesn't make much of a difference. Um, here's a picture of uh, Watson and Crick a little bit later, just sitting out on a porch in Cold Spring Harbor. It's uh, sort of right on the edge of, the, of, the, of a bay down there and very relaxed kind of atmosphere that per still permeates molecular biology research to this day. Francis Crick just died last July at the age of 88. So we've just lost the link to one of the two people that did this, uh, this amazing experiment. Okay, so um, I want to then uh, tell you, set, set things up for the details of, of DNA replication. So it was, the, the, there was a basic principle that came across from this that you could, could see how this could work, that DNA was sort of like having a photograph and a negative. And so the information is actually in there twice. It's just in, in different forms. And when I tell you about DNA repair in another lecture or two, 
you can maybe see already how useful that is because if you damage one strand, you're not really out of luck because you've still got the information in the other strand and you could probably on the basis of that, a better couple, a few of you could devise a repair strategy if you thought about it. But more importantly, for uh, DNA replication, finally gave an insight to this thing that had been vexing people forever. If you had to have all this information for making a cell and every time a cell divided and you saw it can happen pretty quickly with something like a bacterium or yeast, how could you accurately copy all that DNA, uh, excuse me, all that uh, genetic information. How is it stored? How could it be done? And once you saw, ah, it's just a matter of separating the strands, and if there's an A here, put a T there, there's a C, you put a G, and so on. It was a huge breakthrough. But that then didn't tell people <laughs> how DNA replicated, or even if this is the, the, the mechanism. You can actually come up with all kinds of models for how you could you could replicate things based on this principle, including crisscrossing between strands and all, all sorts of things. The, the, the predominant model, perhaps the, the simplest one, was called semi-conservative. And it, it thought of the, the problem in this kind of way, that if you had two strands of, of the original DNA molecule and then you pulled them apart, that one of the strands here would become one of the strands of the daughter, and then the, the new one would be here. And the same thing would happen on the other side. And then if you did it again, we'd, this thing would happen again with a new strand. This time, the, the, the skinny strand here like this, the skinny strand here, be like this, and then this one again. We have one that was newly synthesized plus one of the one of the uh, originals. So this model, one of the simplest, because it kept this strand intact throughout the whole process, where some of the other models had them being patched back together, all based on the idea that A pairs with T and G pairs with C. But proving this, uh, this was the correct um, model was then another uh, important advance. And that was done by uh, Frank Stahl and Matt, Messel Matt Messelson. Um, and actually, I think I'll skip this for right now. Uh, Matt is a professor up at Harvard, just up at Harvard Square, not very far from here, still very active. Uh, Frank Stahl is a professor out in Oregon. He's, he's still active. Uh, so a lot of the, one of the differences about this course is a lot of the things I'm telling you about, and this is pretty old stuff right now, right, in molecular biology. The people who did these are still around and very active. This is most of modern biology. He's a pretty young scientist, and many of the major characters are still running around and, and with us today. Um, so anyway, um, what... Uh, Frank and um, Matt and, and uh, Frank were at, grads, were at uh, Caltech, and they, they, with a bunch of other students, had, a, had an apartment, and they were sitting around trying to uh, work out a way to figure out this, this model. And they came up with an idea, and that was to uh, see if you could differentially label 
what we might call old DNA and the new DNA here. And since it's chemically the same stuff, it's a bit of a trick. How do you tell old DNA from new DNA? So their idea was since nitrogen comes in two different isotopes, N14, which is the common one, and N15, which is one uh, mass uh, heavier, that maybe you could start out with the DNA, for example, grown in, in N15, and then when you started replication, switch to N14, and then um, uh, follow. You'd then be able to tell if you could separate these uh, molecules on the basis of their density, since the one with the N15 would be heavier than the one with the N14, then maybe you could work this out. And the, the story goes, this has been written, they were sitting arguing about this, uh, or talking about this idea at the table, and uh, it was a good idea, but there was a problem, and that was how, how could you separate the two kinds of DNA based on their density. So they, they had a piece of fingernail and they were trying to see whether they could get it to float by dissolving more and more sugar. They figured if they added more and more sugar, the water would get denser and denser, see if they could float the, the, um, the fingernail. And they weren't able to do it, but they were all chemists and they had a periodic, probably like some places here on MIT, they had a periodic chart right in their living room. So they went and they, and they looked and then they looked at sodium and they went up the or down the periodic table, and then they saw cesium. So that maybe, you know, if you took a solution of cesium chloride and you put it in a centrifuge and you spun really hard, then you'd get a gradient of varying concentrations of slightly different concentrations of cesium chloride, and that they could tune that to a range that would discriminate between the heavy and the lighter forms of DNA. So that's the experiment they did is known as the Messelson-Stahl experiment. But as I say, these are names of come from real people. And the idea was, was pretty simple. They grew the bacteria for many generations. In N15 medium. This is this, the so-called heavy, or H isotope, of nitrogen. And then at time equals zero in their experiment, when they're ready to start the experiment, they switched to medium within 14 we'll think of as the light or the L isotope. And then they isolated DNA after, let's say, increasing rounds of replication that you could tell simply by measuring how much DNA was in your bacterial culture when the bacteria had, had, had doubled, their, doubled their DNA. And this, this is what they, the data they got looked something like this. In fact, 
this case, the blackboard representation is pretty close. So they, this is this is cesium chloride, cesium chloride, and it's been centrifuged very hard so that there's a gradient now that goes from that's light at the top and a little heavier at the bottom of the gradient. There's a little more cesium chloride per mil here than there is there on the tube. And I'll just give us three little sort of reference marks here. So what they found when they started was that all of the DNA was at that position down at the heavy end. And then, so then this is after one generation. So the DNA has now doubled. What they found was that all the DNA was now at this intermediate position. After two generations or two DNA replications, they now found that some of the DNA was here, some of the DNA was there. And if they went to three or more, what they saw was they began to pile stuff up up there. And I think most of you could probably make the connection between that data and that picture that I've got up there. This is the heavy, heavy DNA. This is the heavy light. So this would be heavy, heavy, heavy light, light heavy. After one round, it would all be here. After two, we have heavy light. But this one's light, 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 light heavy. And now, so we've got light, light, the heavy light, no uh, heavy, heavy is ever going to show up again. And the longer you do this, the more you'll get the light accumulating. A very simple experiment done by, done by real people, but enormously powerful, because now it showed that this basic idea, you have the photograph and negative, and you pull them apart and copy them, was right. So at this point, begin to see why data uh, of, of Avery that before people had trouble accepting, it, all of a sudden, now it's really easy to see why DNA was the genetic material, and this is what sort of ushered in this great uh, burst of molecular biology. So on the next lecture, what we're going to start doing now is once you, this is all great, but once we start figuring out how to replicate it, we're going to have to get down to enzymes and biochemical steps, and there are some formidable challenges to uh, doing DNA replicating DNA, and it's also awesome. I'll tell you at the beginning of next lecture how much DNA we have and just how accurate it is. It always blows me away. I'll see you then. Take care.